Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. The rise of things like Trumpism, as well as alternative uh, areas for men to go find comfort, has shown us something. Boys and men are struggling in the world. Statistics show they're more likely to commit suicide than girls and women. And if they begin poor, less likely to gain college education or secure a middle class job. But why? We're going to discuss the issue with Richard Reeves, author of the new book of Boys and Men, why the modern male is struggling and why it matters and what to do about it. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET-FM. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson, who returns tomorrow. Boys and men are really struggling right now. And I'll note up front that this statement may sound weird to some. Let's be clear. Men in America and around the world have created our institutions and systems of government. They have mostly and all around the world been the ones to create social structures that we rely on to function. And they have had an outsized influence in the way that we live, thrive, and also struggle. They are disproportionately in power, both in home and in the workplace, as well as in our politics. But none of this necessarily means that boys and men, particularly in America, and particularly those working class, are doing well. In fact, many measures show that they are struggling. Boys and men are more likely to commit suicide than girls and women. And if they begin poor, they are less likely to get a college education or secure a middle-class job. And they are more likely to struggle to have and maintain friendships. Now, none of this means that we shouldn't be concerned about the things that affect women, things like abuse on the side of men, harassment in the workplace, or about equal pay. But, in fact... Maybe by also concerning ourselves with the problems men face, we can more successfully target these issues that women also deal with on a daily basis. Indeed, by attacking this issue, we may be able to create a better society for us all. And that's the way we'd like to start this conversation to get today. And we have a fantastic guest to help us do that. Richard Reeves is a senior fellow in economic studies at Brookings. He's also the author of the new book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. His research focuses on boys and men, inequality, and social mobility. And we invited him on the show to discuss the struggles boys and men face, how we know they're real, and how we can try navigating our way towards solutions. Richard Reeves, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me on. I want to just start here at the top. Uh, why did you even start looking into this issue? Well, it's very closely related to the way you framed this at the top of the conversation, which I loved, by the way. I work on issues of inequality and social mobility, racial equity, uh, and essentially, like, what does it take to create an opportunity society? And I just kept running across lots of evidence the working class men in particular black boys and men were really struggling and that, that was a big factor 
in driving some of the broader inequalities we see in society. And some of that, frankly, surprised me. You know, I knew that there were gaps in education, but I didn't know how big they'd gotten. I didn't know how far behind boys had fallen. I knew that many men were struggling in the workplace. I didn't know quite how many men were out of the workforce now. And so the, the closer I looked, the more I began to believe that Actually, if we want flourishing families and flourishing communities and focusing on some of the specific challenges of boys and men uh, is essential without in any way giving up on the ongoing challenges that women and girls have. So I came to believe that we have to do both both things at once. You know, I think a lot of people would struggle with this idea. Not everyone. I think moms would probably agree with you, and we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, how do we quantify how the modern male is struggling? What did your research reveal to support this idea? Well, let's start in education, where to some extent this is this is a relative issue. But if we look at say the gaps in education now, they're they're much bigger in uh, in the direction in favor of women and girls now than they were in favor of boys and men the other way. So let's take college. On college campuses now, it's 60, 40 female male. And that actually, and women now are about 15 percentage points more likely to get a college degree, a four-year college degree than men. And it was the other way around by 13 percentage points in, in 1972 when Title IX was passed to help women and girls in education. If you take students graduating high school uh, with the best GPAs, two-thirds of them are girls. Girls are much more likely to graduate high school than, than, than boys. And I should just add that it, these all of these inequalities just get much worse when you look at them through the lens of race and specifically look at black boys and men. So for every black man that gets a college degree, there are two black women getting a college degree. That's not to say there isn't still much more work to be done in general on on racial inequality. But actually young black women now are slightly more likely to have a postgraduate degree than young white men. They've done incredibly well in the last few decades. And so the, the, our, our perceptions of what's driving inequality need to catch up with some of, the, some of the data. And one more data point in education is that almost one in four of our boys have been diagnosed with some kind of developmental disability at school, almost one in four, 23%. Uh, and that's, that's more than doubled in recent years. And, and to me, that suggests that there's not something necessarily wrong with our boys, but something wrong with the way the education system is serving them. And in the labor market, we see that one in three of those men with just a high school diploma are now out of the labor force. And that's about 10 million men. And so just, and you've already mentioned suicide and so-called deaths of despair. Men account for about three times as many deaths from opioids, from suicides, uh, and for alcohol-related illnesses. And so you're seeing that playing out in those, in those tragic ways, too. You know, this paints a bleak picture. One more stat I thought I saw or read in the book uh, was talking about how men actually are making less now, middle-class men, than they did in the late 1970s, if I'm correct. That's right. That's correct. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Thank you for reminding. Thank you for reminding me of that because that's a a big part of the story that I skipped in that in that overview, which is that when those men who are in work uh, are earning less overall than men did in 1979. So most men in the U.S. today earn less than most men did in 1979. Now, again, that's not true at the top. The men at the top are earning quite a lot more than men at the top were in 1979, but about 60% of men are actually earning less. The male wage distribution has dropped back a little bit, and that's quite an extraordinary economic fact. And one of the things that means, by the way, which brings us to the question of why mums and women should also be concerned about this and, and are, is that that means the only reason that middle-class families have seen any increase in income at all since 1979 is because women have worked more and earned more. 
which is great. That's one of our, the great achievements of, of recent history. But it's also a salient economic fact that in middle-class families, men, men have actually not, are making no bigger contribution today to those households than they were 50 years ago. Why do you think that this is happening uh, in the world where men still hold so much power? I mean, if men dictate so much of our politics and our economy, how can uh, men in the middle class and lower class be struggling at the same time? Well, you're right to point out that at the very top of society, certainly in politics, only one in four of our members of Congress are women. Only 44 of the biggest 500 companies are run by women. And so there's a lot more work to be done at the top of society. But I think it's because really inequalities of class and race are really trumping those of gender now. You're seeing that women women at the top with college degrees, especially if they're white, have just done incredibly well in recent years. White women now earn much more than black men, for example. And college-educated white women have seen a huge increase in earnings and employment rates. And so I think what's happening is that the people at the top, people in upper-middle-class jobs, people who work at think tanks, maybe people who work in the media, work at newspapers – but certainly those who are in politics are kind of looking around and they don't see the problem because the men at the top are up to, by and large doing pretty well. And in some cases, there's still more work to be done at the top for women and girls. But if, if they don't look down, they don't look at what's happening in middle class families, working class families, white communities, then it's easy to miss the fact that in those communities, it's increasingly true that it's the boys who are struggling at school, the men who are struggling at work, and the fathers who are struggling to remain in touch with their kids. And so there's a, there are problems with men that are very often not visible to the elites. You know, you mentioned the elites and it not being visible uh, to them. I kind of want to attack it from both sides, right? Because in your book, you mentioned how both uh, liberals, progressive, those on the left, as well as conservatives and those on the right kind of get this issue wrong in how they mm. attack it. So let's start with the left. What do you think the left is getting wrong in uh, this issue and how to uh, get it back up so that men can be more helpful in our society? Yes, I I describe it as a form of progressive blindness. And and what I mean by that is that the left are struggling to come to terms with the existence of real problems affecting many boys and men because they remain committed to a view of gender inequality, which is one-sided. The gender inequality essentially means it's a shorthand for problems of women and girls. And I totally understand that. And I spent most of my career sharing that kind of reflex because it's been true for, well, I don't know, let's say conservatively 10,000 years or forever, right? Until very recently, most of the gender inequalities did run in ways that disfavored women and girls, but that's just not true anymore. And that's partly because of the extraordinary success that women and girls have had. So the first thing is you just can't, they won't, they, we can't see it, won't say it. So it's just, there's a failure to engage with some of these real issues because of a fear that it's a zero-sum game and that somehow engaging with the problems of particularly working-class men will signal less commitment to the rights and concerns of women. And I just think that's wrong. I think they can do both. And then the second thing is that the left have committed themselves to a view of masculinity and femininity, which is entirely socially constructed, that, the, that there is no biological difference at all in the psychology and preferences of men and women. Uh, and, of course, on the other side, we'll get to this, but they, that those differences are overstated. But many on the left have committed themselves to the idea that really these are just social categories. And that's wrong. Uh, and I think it's made them sound out of touch with people, but it also means that they've kind of failed to see some of the specific problems that boys and men are having.
We're speaking with Richard Reeves, who's a senior fellow in economic studies at Brookings and also also author of the new book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters and What to Do About It. Uh, And I do want to unpack that point again before we get into the response that's happening on the right, because one of the things that you detail in your book is how uh, while there are differences between men and women, that doesn't mean that all men are like one way or all women mm-hmm. are the other. There's a statistical overlap. Can you explain that for right. folks to understand exactly what you're getting at when you're saying understanding the differences between men and women? Yeah, that's, it's such an important point. I'm so, I'm so glad you're giving me the chance to talk about it because so much of the time we struggle to understand how differences on average between two groups here between men and women it uh, doesn't mean that there aren't many people within each group that are more like the other sex, right? Oh. So a good example of this might be height. You know, on average, men are taller than women, but a third of women are taller than the average men. Right. The, the distributions really overlap, and that's true for pretty much all of these differences. So if we talk about you know, being a bit more nurturing, uh, if we talk about being a bit more interested in things, so a bit more interested in like, engineering-type things, uh, as opposed to more like people-based professions, on average, there's a difference between men and women. But most of those distributions overlap a lot. And what we have to be very careful of is to make one of two errors. The first error is to pretend there are no differences at all, so they distribute, that there, there are no differences between men and women. And, and what that means is that any differences in outcomes or, say, share of an occupation can only be the result of sexism and socialization. And that's wrong. But on the other hand, there's also a problem, which is to, is to say, well, they're determinative. They determine your role in life, right? Um, so women look after kids, men are engineers, or what choose it. And, and that's wrong morally and wrong empirically, because there are so many people that do go against those, those standards. So we've got to be able, I think, to, to have this whole this idea in our head that there can be differences on average that don't necessarily apply to an individual. To make it personal, my, one of my sons worked in early years education. And I'm furious when he's discriminated against because he's a man. But my sister-in-law is an engineer, and I'm furious when she's discriminated against because she's a woman. Just because on average, you're going to find more women in early years education. In fact, it's almost all women in early years education. And on average, more men in engineering doesn't mean you should treat my son or sister-in-law differently. You know, while I was waiting for my bar results and uh, studying for the bar exam, I spent time as a uh, as a substitute teacher, and sometimes I would end mm. up getting kindergarten and elementary school assignments, and it felt like being a man was kind of a cheat code because you'd walk in and they're like, "Well, this isn't like what we're used to," <laughs> yeah, and they were they were a lot more eager to listen to me. I heard than some of the uh, other uh, teachers. They said, "Hey, could you come back more? Have you thought about getting an education?" So, uh, shout out to all the male teachers. Teachers out there, because uh, thank that you, was, that thank was you. Very good I mean, only especially in those early, uh, only one in ten elementary school teachers, but only between two and three percent of kindergarten teachers are male, which, as I calculated, is a lower share of the, is is a much lower share of the profession than women flying U.S. military planes. Yeah. there yeah. are there are between two and three times as many women flying U.S. military jets as there are men teaching kindergarten. We're going to get into calls uh, a little bit later, and if you want to give us a call now to get lined up, 313-577-1019 and let us know, why do you think men and boys are struggling, and uh, what are the things that you believe are working against them? What are the things that they need help getting better at, and what are ways that our structures and institutions can prioritize men both in their help and relationships without sacrificing women? Because again, we can do both at the same time. Indeed, I want to talk to you if you're a man that struggles finding the right role models in our society or where you fit. 
Let us know what your struggle's like. Or if you're a woman who has seen that in interacting with the men in her life as well as sons, give us a call, 313-577-1019, and we can fit you into the conversation. But one of the things that I brought up, uh, Richard, when we were talking is that as a result of kind of this gap, it does seem like there's been uh, uh, some on the right that have tried to fill the gap in saying for Mm -hmm. disaffected men, you know, I follow a lot of sports. I even follow combat sports. Sometimes you'll be in the, uh, and because you're in those circles, you hear a lot of things and role models put out there uh, that I, I, I just don't, I don't like it. All right. I think that these aren't the people that you should be looking up to with a real regressive view of the world, which is one of the reasons why I get concerned because it seems like when there's a gap uh, of, of knowledge or help for men who are going through this affected time, they end up looking at people like, you know, beyond Joe Rogan, we can talk about folks like Andrew Tate or other yeah. uh, Jordan Peterson or whoever yeah. you want on the right. What is the issues that you find with the conservatives and those on the right with dealing with uh, this issue that we have with men right now and their struggles? Yeah, well, I think the, the problems that the right have are, are one, just to mention this issue about biology again, is that now if the left sort of deny any biological differences, the right sort of massively overstate them and they use them to determine people's roles. So that's the first problem. The second problem is the one you just identified, which is really the way in which the real problems of many boys and men are they turn into grievances uh, if they're not addressed by mainstream institutions and by society in general and grievances can then be exploited by people on the right and and i think it's important to distinguish between sort of different actors here right um jordan peterson i think has acted as this huge listening ear right all he's done is made you know millions of young men feel like someone can hear them and the fact, the, what's interesting about him is just that there is such demand. Yeah. Like, his, like his book sells five, five million copies, you pay attention. And you're like, well, what is it? Because actually what he says isn't that particularly interesting. It's just the fact that he's listening. And then you get someone like Andrew Tate, who's now back on Twitter, of course, who, having been deplatformed, uh, who is, was deplatformed for his misogyny. And what's happening here, I think, is that a lot of, a lot of young men, I've raised three boys myself, all of whom have gotten interested in these figures at various points. Mm. They're now in their 20s. What's happening is that society as a whole isn't doing a very good job of providing a script for positive masculinity in a way that's compatible with gender equality and this new world. And that's created a huge gap, huge demand for some kind of, how am I supposed to be in this world? It's a bewildering and confusing world for a lot of boys and men especially those who don't have much economic power. In comes whoever it is, Andrew Tate, and they provide a script. And a lot of men cling to that like a life raft because they're not getting it from anywhere else. I think we're really failing as a society to write a script for positive masculinity that's compatible with gender equality. And then as a result, a lot of men are disoriented and confused, and that that can then be picked up. And then you see people like Senator Josh Hawley, who has his own book coming out on men next year, called Manhood, The Lost Virtues of Masculinity. And what Senator Hawley's doing is simply saying, wasn't it great back in the 50s when men were real men, when we had factory jobs uh, and everyone knew their role? And most people would be like, no, it wasn't great. (laughs) And and, and by by the way, it isn't the world we want anymore um, for our daughters as well as for our sons. And so, but it's a kind of reaction. And it's quite powerful now, that reactionary impulse 
is pretty strong on the right, and this issue about gender is really playing into it. It's, it's really interesting to me whenever you hear people say, wasn't life great in the 50s? And I say, well, you know, I'm a black man, so uh, no. I would say <laughs> no. no. And, and <laughs> no. it seems to always get lost in the messaging <laughs> there. But, uh, you know, we, we will get into the positive scripts that you mentioned, as well as solutions uh, to this issue and uh, calls for, as we have them coming in. Peter right. and Sterling Heights, Michelle and Waterford, you guys will be next uh, when we continue here on Detroit Today. But we also have opportunities for you. Give us a call. 313-577-1019 to get in the conversation. Solutions and your calls coming up next when we return on Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. It's Detroit Today, 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson, having a conversation with Richard Reeves, the author of the book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. And we will get into what to do about it, as we've already discussed uh, how they're struggling and why it matters. But first, we will get to the phone line, starting out with Peter in Sterling Heights. Peter, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Yes, good morning. I hope you can hear me in the car phone. Um, I just want to say that there's uh, a lot of different ways that men are told they are failures if they're not able to reach their predisposition to provide. So if you don't do this, if you don't get a college degree, you're a failure. If you don't do this by this milestone, you're a failure. I mean, there, a lot of things are overlooked. For example, a lot of the success, the people don't realize how much people are getting paid in the trades. I've heard of welders making six-figure incomes on a high school diploma. So there are other ways to provide if given the opportunity and reminded how to get there instead of just the typical business model of get degree, move on to next school, get degree in an oversaturated administrative market. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Peter and Sterling Heights. Mm. You know, I know that, Richard, you have things to say about that because mm. you did mention uh, not only uh, trades in your book, but also the idea of being a provider and how that model uh, may be a bit outdated. But I present mm. his uh, statements uh, to you. Yeah, I do think that we have to broaden the role of provider uh, for men. You know, we live in a world now where 40 percent of women earn more than the average man. Forty percent of breadwinners are women. A third of wives earn more than their husbands. And that's a transformation in the space of just a few decades. So women's economic power is just the, the economic relationship between men and women has completely changed. So what that means is the idea of the sole breadwinner, right? The idea that I'm going to bring home the bacon and she's going to raise the kids. That's in the rearview mirror culturally. But that doesn't mean that there isn't still this shared providing role. And increasingly, it does take two to uh, adults and mothers and fathers to bring to bring that to the table but it also means that fathers can expand what it means to be a provider to include providing care providing support providing guidance providing learning i mean the, the things that fathers have historically done have not just been around like economic provision but also around helping particularly teenagers learn how to be in the world so fathers can be teachers and role models as well so we need a much broader definition of provision now beyond the economic one but to the extent that, yeah, if you're a dad, then you have economic responsibilities as well, uh, even, even if you may. Actually, sometimes you meet that responsibility by being the one caring for the kids, like I did for a while. 
So how do we help men do that? Oh, I completely agree with Peter that the kind of only college is the only route is completely wrong. And that's actually been particularly bad for boys and men because they struggle more likely on average, Nick, yeah. in mainstream education. So one of my proposals is a thousand new technical high schools where we can actually learn the sorts of trades that Peter was talking about. Let's have a million new apprenticeships in many of those you know, more technical vocational uh, jobs which don't require a four-year college degree. And he's quite right. They can pay quite well. And many of them are short of labor because we've become a little bit obsessed with this college for all model. And that's turned out to be particularly damaging to boys and men who have these alternative pathways. And those, those proposals, technical high schools, apprenticeships, everything else equal, they are more helpful to boys and men. But that's not a bad thing. That's just a thing. Um, and actually turns out that kind of mainstream college is better for women and girls on average. And again, that's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. And so we need an education system that has more variety and that will help more boys and men to succeed. Right. Trade school. Obviously, men can go. Women could go as well if they would like yeah. to. It would just be an opportunity for us to expand uh, the ability of people to uh, get involved. As uh, We did have a call that dropped, however, so now we have room for you if you want to get involved with the conversation. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019, and you can join the conversation. Uh, Richard, one of the things that you had mentioned was that there are not a lot of positive scripts out there for uh, men. That's why they end up going to mm. maybe some of the places where that need is getting fulfilled, where they can have a listening ear or a script on how to be a, ro- um, a male, which we would think of as maybe more regressive, something that's not so positive for our modern society. Do you have examples of places where men can get more positive scripts or things that you have seen out there that have been more beneficial, that they can utilize, that can fill that vacuum, that aren't some of the void that we see by really uh, extremist uh, 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 groups? Yeah, well, I think the first one is kind of where we just were a moment ago, which is the, the, the huge role of fathers. Right? I think the, the importance of fatherhood here cannot, cannot be overstated. And it's important here to make a, an important distinction, uh, and one that I'm uh, at pains to make in the book, which is that fatherhood matters independent of the relationship between the father and the mother. There's a view, again, Again, let's, I'll, I'll caricature a little bit the left and the right position, but there's a danger that the left says, well, do we really need dads? You know, uh, how important are fathers really? Uh, single parents are doing great, uh, sort of benching the men. And then the right will say, it doesn't matter as long as they're married. Yeah. Right? They have to be a hus- In order to be a good father, you have to be a husband. And I just think both of those positions are completely wrong and very unhelpful given the changes we've seen in society, that fatherhood matters, period. It doesn't, it's not contingent on, on any other relationship. And you, then one of the reasons it matters is because you are, you are actually just not telling boys how to be, but showing them how to be. Like kids, kids I've, raised, as I've, met, I've raised three boys. Kids don't believe their ears. They believe their eyes, <laughs> yeah. right? You've got to do it. And that also means that other role models, like one of the reasons I'm a little bit borderline obsessed with getting more men into our schools teaching, uh, doing that kind of substitute teaching role you talked about, is not only because actually they seem to help boys do better academically, but because they, they provide a lot of the coaches. Men are more likely to volunteer to be coaches after school and things like athletics, so boys' athletics. I would add things like the scouts movement, summer camps, um, church groups, etc. We've become quite shy of the idea of having like male-only spaces very relaxed about the idea of female-only spaces. And I just think we should, we, it, there are certain occasions when it's good to just have some of those spaces that are separate because they do allow you to do some of that learning in a, in a different environment. And I think we've got to a point now where it's okay to have some of those, those separate spaces. YMCA is doing a huge amount of work for black boys, boys and men of color. 
the Boys to Men programs we see in cities like Chicago. Really successful, but they are based on very specifically male relationships between kind of male mentors and the boys, male, you know, scout leaders, church leaders, whatever, and the boys. And they're unapologetic about that. Right? And I think we've got to a point where we, we should be unapologetic about creating spaces specifically for our boys and young men. Coaching was some of the best uh, experiences I ever had coaching basketball, not only because we got W's, but you got to work and actually coached men and boys and girls. Uh, They should have never let me coach baseball, but that's besides the point. We still all had a good time. Basketball was where it was at for me. But uh, we have more calls coming in right now. Bernadette and Old Redford, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Good morning. Good morning. My comment was related to um, co-education. And while I have been a product of both, I know I sound antiquated when I say I believe in sex-segregated education, that uh, boys and girls are preening for the other sex, much to the detriment of their education. And I'd like to hear uh, your response. Richard, I know you have thoughts about that. I'll present the question mm. to you. Yeah, I look quite hard at this, Bernadette, because uh, a lot of people have suggested exactly that, and, and it seems quite in, in, seems like it makes sense. But the evidence actually that it improves educational outcomes for boys or girls isn't just isn't that strong. Um, and it would be a huge change, of course, in our education system. I mean, you can imagine what it would take to to, to create single-sex schools throughout the public school system. Uh, and so I don't think the evidence that, that it's a good thing is strong enough to justify a huge change in policy. But I think the instinct behind it, the, 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 which is really what you're getting at, I think, Bernadette, is exactly right, which is, are there spaces where it's helpful to have you know, girls and boys doing separate things? We just talked about some of the extracurricular ones. But I do think that there are opportunities perhaps within education, certainly around things like sex ed, athletics, et cetera, just to create some of those spaces. And the other thing I think is happening, and I think one of the reasons people argue for single-sex schools is they know that boys mature at a different rate to girls. Boys mature later, which means that like, if they're the same age, then the girls are ahead in terms of their maturity, and that can be a problem for both. And so one of the things I do suggest is that we start boys in school a year later and give them an extra year of pre-K and childcare so parents don't have to pay for that, but that actually boys are a bit of, bit of a disadvantage. And I think that having boys being a year older than the girls in the class would solve some of the problems that people are trying to solve with single-sex education. But like, I, don't, I don't know for sure, and I'm not, certainly not against it. And there are lots of charter schools and private schools that do it. And there's some evidence that it might be particularly benef- beneficial, actually, for black boys to be in those single-sex schools. So I think you know, the jury's out a little bit, um, and I'm not, certainly not against them. There's certainly no evidence they do any harm. I'm just not convinced that the evidence that they're, that they're going to solve the problem is strong enough to re- basically redesign our entire education system on a single-sex basis. Bernadette and Old Redford really appreciate that question and you joining the conversation here on Detroit Today. Richard, I just want to dovetail off of that just to put a bit of a finer point on that. One of the recommendations you did make is perhaps uh, men being held back a year, redshirting, so to speak, uh, because of the uh, fact that uh, girls mature at a faster rate. Can you just Mm. explain to listeners how that manifests itself in terms of uh, education and why you, I mean, you already touched on why you think it'd be a Mm. good idea, but just how it manifests itself and how you got to that point. Yeah, I mean, I got to that point by just looking at these really big gaps in, in educational outcomes. We mentioned some of them already around kind of GPA, college going, et cetera, all, all the way through high school. Um, you know, three quarters of valedictorians are girls now. I mean, the girls are just, like, to put a fine point, the girls are just 
smoking the boys, <laughs> really, in middle <laughs> and high school especially. Um, and you can start thinking, well, okay, why is that? Um, because after all, as you said right at the top of the show, it's not like feminists designed the education system 100 years ago. And I think the main reason, uh, I mean, it's partly because there are a few male teachers, partly we don't do enough vocational, but I think the main reason is that boys' brains develop a little bit more slowly than girls, and particularly in those teenage years. So about uh, the two biggest gaps are at five, about five and about 15. And in teenage years especially, because girls hit puberty earlier, their brains develop earlier, and especially the skills around organization, being able to control your impulses, plan plan for the future, etc. They're actually more, they're just more advanced than girls. So the average, you know, a girl is about a year, at least a year ahead in those skills. So my proposal is just, well, let's just start boys a year later. Would that have any detrimental uh, impact on girls, however? Well, that's a, a question. I mean, like, it's, I think obviously this needs to be evaluated, but when people have I've done some studies where the boys have been a bit older, and by the way, in private schools, it's pretty common. I found one private school where a third of the boys were a year older. Mm. Um, and it didn't seem to be affecting the girls' performance. Uh, if anything, you might argue that the boys being a little bit more mature might create a better learning environment for the girls. Mm. Uh, and that the girls are actually sometimes a bit frustrated in their learning because the boys just boys aren't mature enough. And girls almost always date boys who are older than them. Now, that's a different thing, of course, yeah. but uh, in high school. And so I think that maturity gap is like, no one who's ever been in a school like you or is surprised by the idea there's this gap. So I think if anything, it might help girls um, to just level the playing field a bit and not have the immature boys sitting next to them. Um, but as I say, the jury's out on that a little bit. There's certainly nothing to suggest it would necessarily be bad for them to have boys who are a bit more mature than them around. Uh, you're, you're bringing me back to some memories, Richard, but I'll save okay. that for I, another I time. Good. I don't know if they're good or <laughs> bad. <so. laughs> Harry in Sterling Heights, save, save, us from the, save me from myself as you're on yeah, Detroit it's a today. Great, great conversation. Uh, I'm going to be 73 years old, and I probably been the best of times and worst of times. But there's so many opportunities right now that I didn't have as a kid, you know, machinists and just uh, people putting on, uh, helping you train, and there's so many great opportunities. You're, they're paying decent money. And my dad told me when I was a kid, if you sold uh, shoelaces and you're the best shoelace salesman in the world, you'd make money and be happy. And a lot of times it's just attitude. Mm. Mm. Richard? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that um, sometimes we, we overstate like this measure of like how much money have you made, how, how have you climbed the career ladder and stuff. Um, you know, and, and again, as we mentioned earlier, this kind of whole point about college, and uh, you've got to get, you know, just these standards. Like one of the earlier callers said that, um, uh, you know, Peter, I think was saying that you've got, you, to succeed, you've got to tick these various boxes. And you're quite right, actually, like everyone's different. Everyone finds their niche. But the thing that concerns me the most is that I just see quite a lot in the data. I see quite a lot of young men actually not really being quite very clear where they want to go. Okay. You see a lot of zigzagging. Um, there's this phrase in sociology that haphazard self. There's a sense of, I'm not quite sure where to go. The girls are much more on it, if I can put it that way. Yeah. They're like, okay, I'm going to do this, and I'm more linear. And so it doesn't really matter what the thing is, whether it's shoelaces or a doctor or kind of whatever, but, but what you do need is a sort of strong sense of agency, right? That's what I'm going to go and do. That's who I'm going to be. This is who I'm going to be in the world. And I feel a lot of, I feel like a lot of young men actually just, actually just out of the labor market altogether. It's yeah. not quite clear what they're doing. It's just struggling, I think, generally. And so you're right. The end, we shouldn't mistake the means to the end, right? The end could be different. But what I do, what I do want to see is more opportunities and more boys and men sort of 
like energetically exceeding them and being who they want to be in the world. And there's been this whole push for female empowerment, which has been terrific. You go, girl, be who you want to be, lean in, etc. We actually need a bit of a similar message now for for boys and men, I think, too, which is a sense of like, yeah, you can you can be who you want to be as well. Yeah, and not necessarily just in prescribed notions of you have to follow this path, but if you want to be the yeah. best nurse out there, if you want to be the best yeah, uh, right. teacher out there uh, in English or uh, whatever it is, school, whatever, whatever it is, it is. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Melissa in Detroit, you're next on Detroit Today. Uh, good morning. Good morning, uh, good morning good to your guest. Um, we hit a question um, for your guest. I wondered if you have um, investigated uh, trauma and the impact on men's well-being. Um, that's something that I see out in the world is that we've all had trauma just to different degrees. Mm-hmm. And I think men, you know, we've had an awful lot of wars through the thousands of years mm-hmm. and awful lot of violence. And, um, you know, and I know men have individual trauma and collective trauma, uh, generational trauma. And I'd, I'd love to see more men who are good role models just going to every reach of the of our country and saying you have trauma. What can we do to help you? How can we how can we make you have better, higher well being? Richard, is that something that came up in your research? Yeah, and uh, I, I really appreciate the question, Melissa. I think that there's a, ch- a challenge here because I agree with you. First of all, I think there are a lot of men uh, and boys who are suffering from trauma. And especially if they're disadvantaged in various ways, especially if there are issues around racism uh, or other structural inequalities, that trauma is, is it's a real thing. And of course, it doesn't have to just be a war. It can be from family circumstances, from the neighborhood, from being victims of crime, etc. Um, and that does seem to be a real issue for a lot of boys and men. I think the problem is we're still stuck in this stereotype that, that girls and women are more vulnerable and more sensitive than boys and men. But in many ways, the opposite turns out to be true. One of the things I was really struck by in my research, and this, I think, connects with Melissa's point, that actually when they're in difficult circumstances, in difficult neighborhoods, actually boys are very sensitive to that. In some ways, girls seem to be a little bit more resilient. They seem to be able to rise. They're more upwardly mobile. They don't seem to be affected by family problems. And that's a completely goes counter our stereotypes, I think. And so actually this issue of trauma is, I think, if anything, one that's more true on it across the population for boys and men. But we've got this problem even of admitting it to ourselves. And honestly, I think our models of masculinity sometimes make it hard for the men and boys themselves to admit it, that I have been traumatized. Uh, we've made huge progress on that, but we've got much, much further to go. And it does require us to have these new new models of masculinity. Because you say we all have various kinds of trauma, but some people are much worse than others. Yeah, yeah. Melissa in Detroit, thanks again for joining us in the conversation, which means we have open lines now for you. 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. We'll continue our conversation with Richard Reeves and you when we return. On 
1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson and having a very fascinating conversation with Richard Reeves, a senior fellow in economic studies at Brookings, who is also author of the new book of boys and men, why the modern male is struggling, why it matters and what to do about it. His research focuses on boys and men, inequality and social mobility. And one of the things that I wanted to bring up with you, Richard, uh, considering we're broadcasting here from Detroit uh, and your background with uh, you know issues of inequality and including race that you researched before this book one of the things that led into the book you the city of Detroit comes up I think Saginaw as well in your research can you tell us a little bit about what you learned from your research related to uh, Detroit here and how that factored in uh, with regard to race and so forth yeah well there's actually a couple of couple of places in Michigan that do so Kalamazoo also came yeah. up um, as a place that has a, a uh, just up the road, I guess. My geography's not great. Yeah, but, you're right. You're right. <laughs> right? right. Um, I've been to both, but uh, uh, where a free college program just didn't 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 help boys at all, or men at all. It didn't increase college completion rates for men to have a completely free college program, but it massively increased college completion rates for women. And I think that's one of the reasons that kind of got me interested in some of these these gaps. And and uh, there are differences by race there too. And then I've separately done some work with my colleague, Amber Smith, on issues around high school graduation, uh, gaps in uh, K-12 education, et cetera, uh, by city. And what you see is that there are pretty big gaps in various cities, including in cities like Detroit and Baltimore and Chicago. Part of the explanation there is that black boys uh, in the education system are typically the ones who are struggling the most. And so if you're in a city where you've got both economic inequality and racial inequality overlapping and intersecting with each other. What, that's really where you start to see some of these issues pan out. And in fact, I haven't published this work yet, but, but for Michigan as a whole, but driven quite significantly by Detroit, it's, we can see that uh, only two-thirds of black boys graduate high school on time. So in other words, four years after starting high school, so a third uh, have to do an extra year or, or or two in order to graduate. And that's compared to a national rate of on-time high school graduation of like 86%. Yeah. And it looks like it's, it looks like it's the lowest state, lowest state in the country that we have data for. And so these, these, this, what's happening in our high schools in particular, which obviously is you know, partly what happened before affects that. Mm-hmm. It's having this really disproportionate effect when you look intersectionally, to use that word, by not only by sex, but also class and it looks like in cities like detroit from my analysis what you see there is you see these gen just huge gender gaps yeah. opening up which to some extent are race gaps you know that dovetails perfectly or dovetails well into our next call linda in detroit go ahead you're on detroit today hi yeah thank you i wanted to bring and recenter race in the conversation because i have a lot of concern around policies or programs or interventions <laughs> that are not that are race neutral, let's say. You just gave an example of a program that was sort of gender neutral and then women got most of the benefit Mm -hmm. of it. And so if we don't have programs that are specifically targeted to black men and boys, how are are they really going to reap the benefits of it? And we don't, like, you know, have white men or white women, for example, be the ones who take advantage of it and then further deepen those inequities that you're talking about. Richard? Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's uh, that's a huge problem, Linda, and it and it requires us to be able to look at these problems through these different dimensions. As I mentioned earlier, you know, white white women uh, are doing really well in the labour market and very well educationally, 
Um, and then you see these huge gender gaps like, within, within races, as well as huge gender gaps kind of between races. So you need to look at both. And I completely agree with you that we need, we need education policies and general policies that are just more sensitive to the specific set of disadvantages that, that groups face. And if you don't take seriously the educational and employment uh, prospects for black boys and men, which has huge effects for black families, of course, um, then I just think you're not taking inequality seriously um, because you're stuck in a binary, which is it's either you know, white and black or whatever the binary is, men, women, etc. And so you need to be sensitive. I think you're exactly right by the way you framed it is to be sensitive in the way you think about policies so that you don't end up saying, oh, well, this is for women, say, and then the women who benefit from it are upper middle class women who are disproportionately white. Yeah. And instead start saying, okay, look, who's really struggling? right now in education and it's not upper middle class white women at all it's men and boys and especially working class men and boys and then above all black men and boys as well as many black girls in, in a different way so the, it turns out that many of the obstacles facing black girls and women are a bit different to the ones facing black boys and men and that's okay we should just have policies that reflect the reality rather than what i sometimes think is kind of an elite view of like binaries honestly yeah yeah melissa in ann arbor by the way linda thank you so much for that call but melissa yeah. in ann arbor you're next on detroit today hi um yeah i was just going to mention that uh, this is in regard to um, starting boys a year later. Um, mm. I'm worried about their self-esteem. Uh, there were I'm a former teacher, and um, there were many studies done um, finding that uh, when you retained kids in school, even for a year, their self-esteem was fec- affected for the rest of their lives. And I know it's not the same thing, but I think it's kind of related because well, you can understand that. So, yeah, yeah. just some thoughts yeah. here. Yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's, a, it's really something I, I, I thought quite hard about, um, Melissa, so I'm really glad you asked the question. And it's true what you say, which is that if you hold on back a grade, if you do this, if you do grade retention, it does have, I think, quite quite devastating effects. And of course, and this goes back to Lisa's point, actually, about needing to be careful who, who does that affect. Now, it's really struck by the fact that one in four black boys have repeated a grade before they finish high school. I may have mentioned that earlier, but it's just it's just incredibly so. And the effects of that grade retention being held back are exactly as you say. My, but at the same time, the gaps in this development development are also real. My hope is that if you did it from the very beginning, right? If all boys just started school a year later and it was just the default, everyone did it, no one questioned it. It was the norm then I don't think you have anything like the same stigma as you do letting them go into the school and saying, I'm really sorry, you're going to have to repeat 8th or ninth or 11th grade. And so my hope is that is to get the effect of giving them the extra year to develop without the downside of the stigma that comes from holding them back later. And as I said, it's not like we aren't holding a lot of kids back later. So I, I'd rather, in, what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'd rather try and get ahead of the problem. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm banking on the fact that four and four and five year olds are kind of not not sensitive to it. That if all the boys are doing it, that's just the way it is. Yeah, Melissa in Ann Arbor, you probably asked the question better than I could. I remember thinking when I was in middle school, how insulted I was when people told me I wasn't as mature as girls. But yeah, maybe if we do it a little bit earlier, get out ahead of it, doesn't have quite the same effect. Well put there, Richard. As we move to Abigail in Berkeley, Abigail, you're on Detroit today. Hey, thanks. Um... So I'm an emergency room nurse, and I've seen firsthand um, how it seems like troubled girls a lot of times kind of internalize their issues with self-harm, whereas 
um, boys, a lot of times that manifest in violence um, towards others. And um, I was really struck recently with the details of the Ethan Crumbly situation in Oxford, um, how, you know, he asked his parents for help and asked for a therapist and was essentially mocked. And Mm. that resulted in this, you know, horrible tragedy. Mm. Um, But it just seems like a lack of emotional education um, and uh, teaching your kids how to, you know, cope in healthy ways um, is one way that patriarchy is still really hurting boys. Um, And I guess I just wanted to hear your thoughts. You know, I don't have like a a study to cite in terms of my um, experience seeing how boys tend to externalize that their difficulties. Um, Mm. But is is that accurate? Is that mm. you have thoughts on yeah. that? Yeah. Um, so again, thank you. Thank you for that question. It's true generally that you're going to see more externalizing behavior from boys and internalizing from girls. But uh, um, but I'll say that there are a lot of exceptions to that, and I think there's been a change historically. So we mentioned right at the top of the show that men are, and I'm sure you know this from your own experience, Abigail, that men are very much more likely to take their own lives. So between three and four times higher suicide rates um, for for men and boys. Uh, actually, attempted suicide or self-harm, if anything, the gender gap sometimes goes the other way. Uh, and certainly those kinds of like uh, problems with, that you were referring to, I think, around internal problems are real. And it's also important, I think, to mention that even though we've had the spike in kind of uh, obviously crime recently, that the long-term trend around violent crime has really been down for the last 30 years. Violent crime, like, halved in the last 30 years. And because 95% of violent crimes are committed by men, what that means is that male violent crime massively decreased uh, in the, through the 90s and 2000s. That's partly because it became an older population. It's quite complicated, but, but I think that's been real progress. And so I think that actually we've done a, we've done a good job um, with lots of, on a, lots of exceptions, of course, of trying to sort of get men away and boys away from acting out in that sense. I'm not really worried about the boys who are checking out. And we've made it easier in some ways to check out mm. with, the, with the internet and so on too. There's, there's, there's a lot of male retreat going on. And I've got to say, I think that's probably better. You'd rather have a society where, you know, disoriented, you know, disenchanted men were in the basement than kind of roaming the streets or committing acts of violence. But it's still a problem. It's just a different kind of problem. So in some ways, and I haven't thought about it this way before, Abigail, but in some ways, I think men have become a bit more like women in that some of it has become more internalized. Um, than it used to be, and that's sort of progress. But, you know, one of the reasons why men die of opioid overdoses so much is because they're on their own. Yeah. They're, they're on their own in, at home. And so that's, again, it's a sign of loneliness and detachment. So they're, don't forget, and, and men are very much likely to kill themselves, of course, than they are to hurt somebody else. So there's a balance to be struck here in terms of how we think about it. Abigail, thank you so much for your call. As I've got time for one more. got to make it real quick, though. Dan in Southfield, you've got about 30 seconds. Go ahead. Yeah, Hi. I'm interested in the idea that this could be more of an issue of class, of economic and social class than it is of race. I, I think that some men don't think that they're in, in the game, yeah. that they, they, mm. they don't think they're being given the same chance as men from you know, better backgrounds or right. better is the wrong word. but now, I understand, but, Dan, and I don't mean to cut you off again. We're coming up on the end. I want to give Richard mm-hmm. a time to respond. I don't think it's one versus the other. I think that both are playing in part. But, Richard, we got about 30 seconds to respond. 
Sure. I think you know, uh, the, the people thinking about this uh, the best, like Heather McGee and so on, think about race and class together. I would just add gender to that story, too. Yeah. It is true that working class and middle class Americans have been badly let down in recent decades, and we're seeing some of the consequences of that. But there's a particular problem for working class and lower income men, less upwardly mobile, less healthy um, than the equivalent girls. And so it is class and it is race and it is gender. Um, but we can think those things at once. We are, right. we are perfectly able to think all those things at the same time. Thank you, Dan and Southfield. And thank you, Richard Reeves, again, for coming on and discussing this with us here on Detroit Today. Thank you, Nick. Love it. You're listening to 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your uh, connection to news, music, and conversation. Tune in tomorrow when Stephen returns to continue our GOP 23 series with Nolan Finley of the Detroit News. Detroit Today is produced by myself and Sam Corey. Student producer is Taylor Davis. Music by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. We'll see you tomorrow.